Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. Let Safeway help you unleash your globe with your favorite personal care products. Right now at Safeway, get great deals on all your favorite personal care products, like Head & Shoulders Base Shampoo, Crest 3D Whitening Toothpaste, Listerine Antiseptic Mouthwash, Sensodyne Sensitivity Fresh Toothpaste, Degree Women Antiperspirant Deodorant, or Soft Soap Liquid Hand Soap. Visit Safeway.com or head into your local Safeway store for more deals and specific details. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Come on, girls. Let's go shopping. That's not a knife. <laughs> this is a knife. What are you looking at? Don't look at a boy jumping me. You're mad, you bastard. Far am you. Far am you. Swear to Christ, Liz, you get a bag of all sorts in here, mate. Welcome to Wook Wook. G'day and welcome to The Curve. My name's Andrew Pierce, and this is the podcast that's all about culture, unity, reviews and banter. This podcast is proudly reported on the lands of the Wajuk people of Perth region and to pay respects to their elders both past, present and emerging. On this episode, Travis jumps in to do an interview with writer, director and actor Thomas M. Wright about his feature debut film, Acute Misfortune. This is a film that's about the Archibald Prize winning artist Adam Cullen and his time that he spent with uh, Eric Jensen, who is a young journalist who is invited to spend time with Adam Cullen to write his biography. I haven't seen this film yet. I really want to see this film. And this interview has me itching to see it as well. Usually I'm the one who's out there banging the drum for Australian films. And uh, it's great to see this. Travis is out there doing exactly the same thing for me. So it's always fantastic to have another person out there doing interviews and things like that. I am greatly appreciative of it. Anyhow, let's listen to the trailer and be back with the interview. Adam Cullen hitches his sleeve over a swastika tattoo and forces back a gold watch. He pulls the body of an animal from the red esky he is using as a tanning bath. The tanning draws connections with his work. It has the same tortured aesthetic and the same associations with the outsider, forced to the edges of town by the smell of curing hides. But its real connection is with his wish to leave behind a legacy. He unbuttons his shirt to show me a scar that twists the length of his torso. Acute misfortune, he says. The art world caused this. Cullen is an artist of contradictions and the most debated painter in the country. At 42, he is the youngest ever to have a retrospective at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. His subject is the precipice between innocence and adulthood. He paints violent men, but never says what he thinks of them. Several times, he ends a thought with the same phrase. Endurance is more important than truth. Standing in his white-walled studio is like being in his mind. On one side is a missive he says was written by a girlfriend when he came out of hospital, although it is clearly in his hand. I can do this, it says. I have no fear. I am a great painter. Across the room is the side society sees, an assured signature painted in block letters on an otherwise blank canvas. These are the two parts of his anxiety, above which a pink swastika is sprayed on the ceiling. The room is mostly empty, 
nervous with spilt paint, and there is nowhere to hide from the world as it cuts in through the glass. Assuming you've known about Adam Cullen, the artist, for some time, how long did you know about the specifics of his life? Did you ever meet him? I didn't. I never met Adam. And, um, and I didn't know a lot about Adam at all. Um, I had seen his work, but without associating with him. Yeah. I think um, being from Melbourne, the biggest reach of his work was definitely in New South Wales. And his work is in collections of all the major galleries all around the country. Uh, but I don't come from a visual arts background. I came from a, from a theatre background. I came from experimental theatre. I came from installation art as well. Yeah. Um, but I knew the David Wenham painting that had won the Archibald. I mean, I think it's, it's just about the most famous of the Archibald winners, apart from the Dobell, I think. Um, and it was on the front cover of their book when they had the retrospective of the history of the Archibald Prize, which is called Let's Face It. And yep. it was painting on the front. So I, so I knew that. I didn't know anything about it. The first time I knew about it was the first time I knew of Eric Jensen, which was reading the excerpt from Eric's book when it was published in one of the weekend papers about four years ago. And I was so um, taken by it and thrown by it on, on a kind of number of fronts because, um, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just obvious and kind of too easy to say that Adam's behaviour was um, um, really aberrant, you know? Yeah. Like, and, um, and, I was, and I was fascinated by it. I was fascinated by the fact that someone was um, framing this person for me, you know, several years after that person's death. And when you receive things like that, when you read things like that, um, Eric's a very fine writer, and you take it for you take it for fact. And in fact, even on the dust cover of the book. Um, it says this is a story told at close quarters and without judgment. And I just thought, what a pile of crap! You can't write without judgment. Yeah. You take a position. You take a position on a person. So then I was fascinated. So I was fascinated by the relationship between these two. You know, all relationships are complex and reciprocal and have imbalances and different layers. But this one in particular because it was a professional relationship, it was a personal relationship, it was an abusive relationship, and it's a relationship of enormous imbalance because the stakes are so high. One person is hedging their reputation and their professional life um, on this book, and in a strange way, so is the other. But, but one of them I said that they're dying. And Adam was so sick in those last few years of his life that Eric was writing the book. Um, I just thought it was an extraordinary relationship to, to talk about. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think not knowing much about Adam myself um, and then coming into the film, you know, it's, it's quite clear that his life was quite stark uh, at times. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think not knowing about Adam is no barrier to appreciating the film. The thing is that most films about artists are films about genius. They're films about these extraordinarily successful people whose, whose paintings achieve an almost kind of valueless quality. 
you know, like there are great films about Basquiat, there are great films about, um, about uh, you know, Van Gogh. There are great films about these kind of towering, these towering artists. And Adam wasn't that. He was an extraordinarily popular painter. He was the most prominent painter of his generation. He'd had a retrospective at the Art Gallery in New South Wales at the age of 42. Extraordinarily exciting. It's also, anyone would admit, even his dealers would admit, it was extraordinarily uneven. And so you have an opportunity there to, to, to really talk about something, to really delve into what made this person, um, what gave them the cultural kind of primacy that they had. And um, yeah, I, I, I think it's a, it's a fascinating kind of discovery you know, this story. Absolutely, absolutely. Did you, knowing how stark it is and during filming, obviously I'm assuming it would have been sort of a stark sort of environment, did you have any sort of way to relax and zone out of it at all? Ever myself personally while yeah. I was making the film? Yeah. You know what? To be, to, be, to be honest, I'm not very good at that at the best of times. <laughs> I think, you know, like, we all, you gravitate toward material for, for any number of reasons, and the reasons I gravitated to this story weren't academic, you know. I, you know, certainly had a, you know, certain amount of history of mental health issues, um, of witnessing that in people around me also. Mm-hmm of being in and around, you know, issues with alcohol, um, of, of being around workaholism, um, and, and a kind of sense of purpose that even overtakes your sense of self, overtakes your own life. And I think that certainly happened to um, Adam, but the, the professional and the personal, the ideas and the emotions got so conflated the whole thing seemed to break over him like a wave. And he died at the age of 46. Um, and, and I just thought that was, that, that the type of self-destruction um, that, that was in Adam just forced um, people away from him, forced isolation, and there was no, there was no backing out of it. There was no backpedaling, you know that he could do because um, it was so it was so committed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it actually made me think of uh, leaving Las Vegas with uh, Nick Cage. Um, but right. actually just really That's right. exactly right. And it was a film that I looked at. It was a film that I looked at. It was a film that I thought about. Because his performance in that thing is, is absolutely extraordinary. You know, the, the thing about that movie is that there's amazing, there's an amazing engine of alcoholism that's in that movie. You know, where sometimes this character is hilarious and perverse and bizarre and sometimes he's you know he's such an extreme performance but actually it's impossible to represent true alcoholism on film because of the symptoms and the embodiment of you know especially end stage alcoholism is so extreme um that you you almost can't you almost can't believe it um and, um, but it was, you know, and we, we spent a lot of time talking with the doctors and nurses who treated Adam at that time. We filmed with some of those people. Um, and it was really important to try to make sure that we had a really thoughtful, um, empathic 
you know, depiction of, of that stuff. And it didn't give easy, you know, easy, um, glib kind of answers about why this happened and try to apply some sort of bullshit biographical cinema diagnosis to this person's yeah. life. But to just talk about them, to talk about them as a human being and to give them that grace, give them that decency for, for both of them while acknowledging that the behaviour is, as I said, just clearly, clearly not appropriate and clearly you can't just um, forgive it away, you know. He made a choice to be the type of person that he that he was. Um, but um, people are more complex. He wasn't a fucking serial killer. He wasn't a, he wasn't, a, you know, um, he wasn't a, um, a serious criminal. He was a very, very damaged and occasionally very, very damaging person. Absolutely. From the looks of yeah. It. And he was also the biggest pain of his generation. So it's interesting for me that this is a guy who's getting around with swastika tattoos on his arms and his paintings are hanging in Malcolm and Lucy Turnbull's house. Yeah, I, um, I, I noticed the swastika on his arm in a documentary earlier and, yeah, I thought the same thing. You know, and, um, and to be honest, you know, just the other day, actually, just personally, I was at a library and saw a guy in a neo-Nazi um, top um, at this library and, um, and I gave it up everybody and said, get out of here. Like, I don't want to be around. I don't want to be around this guy. Um, I think Adam's relationship with that stuff was a little bit more complex. Um, but at the same time, it's pretty cut and dry what kind of response that deserves. But still, this guy was given this um, position of enormous privilege, you know, in the art world. Absolutely. I, I find art is, you know, it's something you can separate from people's personal sort of beliefs and stuff like that. It's a relative thing and, you know... Well, it's tricky, isn't it? Because we, we do allow that. We, you know, like, we, we say he's being conceptual. But when you start saying, when you're an artist, a conceptual artist like Adam was, you start to say everything is conceptual, then everything loses meaning. Everything becomes abstract. Um, and that was something I started to feel at times, you know, thinking about this, that that, that, that had happened somehow for him, well, you know, which isn't true. Things do have meaning. They do have value. They do have an impact. Um, yeah. Um, after watching the film, uh, Daniel Henschel seemed like pretty much the perfect choice, um, both physically and vocally. How did, how did he become involved in the film? I, I felt the same before I even began on the film, before I began writing the yeah. film. Um, I'd seen Dan in Snowtown, I'd seen a picture of Adam Cullen, and there was no one else, there was no one else you'd even consider Absolutely. Um, playing the part. I think Dan's performance in Snowtown is one of the great performances in Australian cinema, and I don't think his performance in this film is far off. I think in some ways it's a more complex performance that he has to reach for in acute misfortune, because not only do you see the facade of this, um, you know, hilarious and charismatic and and, uh, and extremely violent and threatening person, but you also see behind that veil. You see into the emotional depths and into the insecurities and into the, the, the territories of this person that are a little bit harder to put your finger on. So I always knew Dan was going to play this part. I offered him the part 
in the earlier stages of writing the film, and he was involved throughout that process, not through the writing, but he'd certainly been reading material with me, and he, we went through a lot of research together, spending a lot of time with Adam's former partners, with his mentors, with his assistants, um, you know, fellow painters and, and contemporaries of his, people who supported him, as I said, doctors, lawyers, drug dealers, and... Um, and it was a very immersive process for Dan, and, you know, Dan in the film, because of the extraordinary support of the Cullen estate, is painting with Adam's brushes, with Adam's paints, with Adam's studio assistant, in Adam's clothes at times, because we wanted to try to, while acknowledging the fact that this is not real life, we're not recreating reality, we wanted to, to be as faithful as we could. So basically nothing's dramatised at all, really? Oh, well, you know, the majority of the dialogue, almost all the dialogue is, is real dialogue um, from Adam's life, from recorded interviews, um, from notation that Eric took. And the difficult thing for us was to compress that and contain it, stay truthful to the sense of the research, um, while, you know, compressing four years into 90 minutes, which is a you know very difficult thing to do. Yeah. And Toby Wallace, who plays Eric Jensen, Toby's casting came about because I saw about 150 people to play that part. And um, Toby, you know, is almost a foot taller than Dan. He's built like a footballer. Yeah. He's, you know, loud and and, and he's, he's, he's something of a kind of lad, Toby, in real life. And when he put down his first tape, everybody else said, no, he's wrong, he's wrong, he can't do it. But I knew that I needed somebody that could go toe-to-toe with Dan. And I knew that I needed somebody who was really invested in the idea that you have to suffer in order to learn, which is what I was like when I was 19, 20. I really believed that you had to go through some sort of baptism of fire to be worth anything. And, And I felt that in... Toby, I believe that one of the toughest questions in the film is why does Eric go back? It's an active question in the film. Why does he return? Why does he keep absorbing himself in this relationship? And I felt like Toby could answer that just because of his emotional intelligence, because of his kind of fierceness and his toughness, while also, you know, being very gentle. There was actually a review that said something, like one of the only critical reviews, you know, poor reviews of being in the film that said something about it's too obvious that you know, this little tiny guy would be intimidated by this big scary man. It's like Toby Wallace wanted to pick Dan Henshaw up and carry him around the room, he could. Um, it's an amazing performance, amazing transformative performance from him. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about him next. Um, he His performance came across as someone who was, you know, slightly timid, maybe easily, some, someone who could be easily persuaded and manipulated, but also someone who was just looking, looking for their own sort of thing just to start their fire in their own lives as you said um that's right looking for a platform yeah look for opportunity and the thing about journalism is everybody is an opportunity like one of the criticisms we want to have if the film is critical of the art world it also had to be critical of the idea that you know for journalists people are just stories at its worst you know and journalism can be you know can i look at you and you look at me and we both make a set of really assessments and we can say everything about one another, about one another's past. We can we can presume a whole bunch of stuff. The question in the film was, does that make you anxiety or does that just make you a prick? And 
And I think Eric learned that, you know, part of his journey through the film, his coming of age in the film is actually learning that you don't know everything. Just to have some humility about people and to understand that there are unknowns. And we all know that from our own relationships. You've been in a relationship with somebody for 10 years and then suddenly realise that you, you feel like this person has all these other dimensions and all these other facets that you've never really grasped, you know? It's very hard to know another person. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I noticed at the start of the film, um, in the scene in the train station where Eric's talking about all the people in the, in the, on the platform um, and, you know, trying to guess who they are and what they do and whatnot, um, and then he goes and meets uh, Adam and he just, he really has no idea. That's right. And then when you see Eric next on the train, there's babies crying around him and people thumping the seat behind him and all those feelings that he had about being able to contain and, um, you know, kind of play his intelligence out over them. But he, he couldn't do that. He's actually a very vulnerable person yeah. in some ways himself. Um, I read a, I read a uh, quote from Ashley Crawford, a cultural critic from Melbourne. He said that, Cullen's a whirlwind of contradictions who seduces and repels people both on canvas and in the flesh. Um, how do you feel about that quote? Is that, like, just from your research and stuff, do you feel that's a pretty accurate quote? I think so. I think that's embodied in the film, too. Mm. He, you know, and that's why, you know, a lot of people were, um, a lot of people in the art world, I think, um, felt frustrated by the fact that there'd been this book written about Adam that seemed to make all these assertions and define him in a certain way. Um, you know, people have very complex relationships with people, so when somebody comes out and says, this is what this person was, here's my diagnosis, there's going to be people who find that really confronting and really objectionable. But I felt that in Adam's, in Eric's relationship with Adam, there was everything that I heard from every story about Adam, which is drawing people in this incredible intellectual and personal reciprocity and friendship, which then spiralled into a kind of far darker, more intimidating place. And that person ended up having to leave um, because this guy, as you said, you know, it was all about attraction and repulsion. It was about Adam, but he seemed to replace um, normal human interaction with, with that kind of behaviour. Yeah, no, it definitely seems like it. Um... Was Eric Jensen involved with the script at all? He co-wrote the film, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I did see the writing credit. I wasn't sure if it was from the book or... Yeah, no. Yeah. We, we wrote the film together over about three and a half years. Wow. It's a lot of hard yeah, work. Yeah, it's intense process. Really difficult to talk about yourself in the third person. and Very difficult to confront your own, you know, material in the way that the film did, I think, because... I always said to Eric at the very beginning, if this film just exists to repeat the conclusions of the book, absolutely no, no reason for us to make it. We have to, the film has to do something else, has to add another layer to the conversation and it ha the film has to really interrogate the book. Um, yeah. Uh, there's been obviously a lot of positive reactions to the film, like obviously with what you just said. Were you expecting such a positive reception? Look, um, look, I don't know, you try to, you try to make the best thing you possibly can. I wish we were making this at a time where there was more value placed on Australian cinema. Oh, absolutely. That's the only thing, yeah. is that I just feel like there's going to have to be a turn at some point. There's going to have to be a change in the direction of the wind where people start to think again about the fact that Australian stories are deeply important. 
they're deeply important to reflect on who they, who we are, on our, on our identity, on our culture. And this film in particular, I think, is very rare in that it's a film really about culture. It's about how culture shapes people, and about how people shape culture, and about how the expectations of the country and its values for its men and its women play themselves out on individuals. Because I feel like there's an obvious thing to say about Adam, which is that Adam tried to live up to an ideal that wasn't, that wasn't authentic to him. He tried to live up to some idea, and partly this film's a conversation with Australian cinema, because I feel like it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea that was sold to him by Australian cinema about what a man was supposed to be. Um, and Adam Cullen wasn't that. And um, it played itself out, the consequences of that played itself out on his body. Um, I found, like I said earlier, I, I was really quite fond of the film. Um, I it was very profound. Um, what sort of inspirations did you take into the process of, like, into the creative process? Certainly, um, certainly, first of all, the people that you surround yourself with and the source material. And then, secondly, it probably had most to do with Australian cinema in terms of outside references. It was looking through yeah. the history of the kind of lineage of Australian cinema. Um, but there comes a point where you have to sort of throw those things aside and just make the film that you're making and let the film talk to you and listen to the film. Um, at some point in time, it kind of tells you what it means. Um, so we tried to be really dynamic about, you know, responding to that and making a film that was really bold and really cinematic and made on a, on a really significant scale, especially considering the fact that this is a truly independent Australian film. Um, made on half the budget of many low-budget Australian films. Yeah. Um, I've read I've read stuff about directors handing out like bundles of DVDs and other material to actors and stuff, you know, so they can um, watch it and get that vision. Do you have anything like that? We certainly we certainly talked about a lot. I mean, I think YouTube is you know an extraordinary research uh, tool too when it comes to talking about the things that are playing themselves out. Well, we, we obviously needed to look at footage of Adam. We needed to understand as much as we could about his early life. We needed to understand as much as we could about that alcoholism, the physical manifestations of that in terms of Dan's performance. But certainly we looked at a whole number of films. We looked at, we looked at films about journalism. Um, we looked at films about, about art. Um, you know, we had a wealth of real material and we also had extraordinary source material in the book to discuss and debate and base everything on that. But we tried to ground most of our work in reality. So it was working person to person with people who were there talking with people because nothing can replace first-hand information and human beings and their personal experience for, um, for influence, you know, for a film. Um, so obviously you said about just before about um, Australian cinema probably not being in the best place it could be at the moment. Um, what sort of things do you think we could do as uh, an audience to... To really, to really help it, I suppose. I mean, aside from just going to movies, I think people need to see films in the cinema. Film is made for the cinema. It, there's, there's a kind of, there's a kind of great lie I think that's taken root at the moment, and I totally understand it and appreciate it. Which is, you know, film to be watched at home. But there's something, you know, for me, the reason I do this and the reason that I came to it as a profession 
is because I used to see film every day. And there's something about going into that dark room, turning everything off and letting yourself be changed by this thing in front of you. And I always remember as a younger person having a kind of this kind of elemental change, and I still feel it when I go to the cinema, that you feel it as though you come out and your empathy and your and your your empathy has been kind of fed. And I think about cinema as a kind of machine of empathy. It can put you in other positions, put you in other perspectives, put you in other people's lives. It can travel you through time. And um, really great cinema does that. And all I was trying to do is is to speak in something of the language of those people that had done that to me. Um, but of course, I want people to see it in the cinema. I want them to to have that experience, you know. And I think we've got you know two of Australia's finest cinematographers who shot this film, um, Jermaine McNicky and Stephen Ducio, and their photography, which is shot in that Academy ratio, the one three seven one. Um, aspect ratio um, is just uh, yeah stunning. I can't speak highly enough about it. That's good. No, I, I really liked it. I really liked the entire film, to be honest. Like I, everything That's about great. it was just it sort of hit me hard. Like I, you know, like I said, I didn't know anything about Adam or anything like that, so I had no real expectation. And seeing what you see in the film, it's it's really like a dark world that Eric enters and. And you know, and you know, like I mean, there's a Guardian quote where the Guardian came out in their review, a five-star review in the Guardian, where they said it's the best Australian biopic since Chopper. And and interestingly, you know, Adam was Chopper Reed's best man at his wedding. He was one of Chopper Reed's closest friends. He styled himself after someone like Adam, uh, after someone like Chopper. The byline of the movie Chopper is. Um, never let the truth get in the way of a good yarn. But the truth very much got in the way of the yarn in Adam's life. The truth got profoundly in the way, whatever that truth was. And I'm not going to, and nor does the film, try to assert, you know, oh, it was definitely this and diagnose what happened. It's just to question what well, went well, wrong here. This is, a, this is a normal kid, or maybe not, but from a seemingly normal family, or maybe not, and 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 he's he's had the space made for him to be this person, and he's made the decisions to be this person. And the same goes for Eric. And how how has that happened? How has this culture created this space um, for, for these guys, for these two men? All right. Well, I'm. <laughs> I'm actually out of questions, um, so I suppose okay, I'll, I'll no, have to wrap it up. Um, but no, thanks, Hayes, for having a chat to me. Um, of course, mate. And, on, yeah. and I, I, I'm really glad to hear that you um, that you enjoyed it. And I hope you, even though you've seen a screener, I don't know how many films you, you watch, but if you get a chance to see it in the cinema, get out there. Get out there and, and see it. Unfortunately, it's not playing in Adelaide. Oh, right. Cinemas in Adelaide wouldn't, um, wouldn't program the film. Oh, I'll have to send some emails out and see what I can do about it. Yeah, please. <laughs> but, yeah, um, so, um, yeah, like I like said, it's a shame that like the Australian cinema isn't as supportive as it could be, really. And that, that doesn't well, help. Well, it's just, it's just like, you know, it, it's not about necessarily about me or about the film or anything like that. It's just about the fact that we need to be seeing Australian stories. Um, you know, we're, well, I think we're kind of preoccupied with this whole idea that we're this international... Um, presence and this world is kind of this international experience 
you know, America is a long way away. England is a long way away. We're a Western-style culture at the base of Asia, and we have a very distinct history. We have very distinct stories to tell, and I think we should be listening, and I think we should be watching more. And I, it's an interesting thing because, you know, something to the tune of, like, 35 to 40% of the books sold in Australia are by Australian authors. And I just think we need to value our cinema in the same way. Absolutely. No, I totally agree. I've, um, I've been reviewing films for only, probably only 18 months, and I um, and my view of Australian cinema has completely changed, to be honest. I, um, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely an eye-opener when you really actually start to watch and look out for that sort of stuff. And the thing is, we're making as good cinema as we've ever made. But, you know, some of those films that were so lauded 30, 40 years ago in Australia, if they were made now, they'd be lost too. And I think it's really imperative that people just, just get out and do it and that the, that the, that the industry out there supports film reaching Australian audiences. Absolutely. Anyway, it's not, a, it's not an interview in an article about the, the, the woes of Australian cinema. Um, but, uh, but yeah, thanks so much for talking. No, that's all. Thank you very much for speaking with me. So that was Travis having a chat to director Thomas M. Wright about his film Acute Misfortune, which is an Australian cinema's right now. And just like every other Australian film that we cover on The Curb, highly recommend heading along to go and see this film. I know I will be going to see it straight away. I can't wait. I've heard nothing but great things, and a lot of people have called this uh, the best Australian film in years, uh, obviously, you know, alongside Sweet Country too. Um, but in this particular mould, it's uh, I've heard a lot of people compare it to Chopper as well, which I'm very, very curious about. So yeah, head along, go and see Acute Misfortune. It's getting a lot of five-star reviews out there. A lot of places are calling it stunning and brilliant and uh, striking and brilliant. Okay, so that is Acute Misfortune. This is me, Andrew, from The Curve. Thanks again for listening to this episode and checking us out. Head over to thecurve.com.au to read reviews, read articles, and read a whole bunch of different stuff and to listen to other episodes as well. Uh, also, follow us on social media, facebook.com forward slash thecurveau, also uh, twitter.com forward slash thecurveau. And if you want to go the extra mile and help the show out, head over to patreon.com forward slash thecurveau. Every little bit helps the show continue running. Thanks again, guys. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in the next episode of The Curve. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. Order like a champ at Raisin Cane's. With tailgates of hand-battered chicken fingers and cane sauce and jugs of freshly made tea and lemonade, you can guarantee victory for every game day meal. Raisin Cane's Chicken Finger, one love. Order online or on our app.